hymn 334, The Light of the World is Jesus. We'll sing the first, third, and fourth, hymn 334. <clears throat> the whole lost in the darkness of sin the light of the world is jesus like sunshine at noonday his glory shone in the light of the world is jesus come to the light is shining for thee sweetly the light has dawned upon me once i was blind but now i can see the light of the Number three, ye dwellers in darkness when sin blighted eyes, the light of the world is Jesus. Go wash at his bidding and light will arise. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light, is shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. Number four. No need of the sunlight in heaven, we're told. The light of the world is Jesus. A lamp is the light in the city of gold. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light, is shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. Amen. Thankful for the light of the world being Jesus. We live in a dark time, don't we? Sin's everywhere around us, and sin thrives in every corner, it seems like, and Thankful for the light of Jesus and a church that holds up Christ and makes a big deal out of him. And uh, so glad to see all your bright, smiling, happy faces here today. And the beginning of a new week, a day to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. And so if you um, are here today and visiting with us, we'll take a moment out of the service to recognize you in a couple of minutes. We won't embarrass anybody, but want to get to know those who are here. And thankful for that. Excited. At the end of the service, we've got three baptisms lined up today. So excited for that. And I've got a, I've got a, 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 got a longer than normal sermon. I have to preach really fast. So, Jr. fired up about that back there. He says, "Pastor, just preach on." Everyone's like, "No!" So, uh, but uh, glad you're here. Let's shake each other's hands, greet one in the Lord, and if you're sick, don't shake anybody's hand. We'll come back and sing that chorus in a minute. All right, let's sing that chorus. Words are on the screen. Sing it out now. Here we go. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light. is shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. 
light of the world is Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll get started this morning. Ask God to be with us in a special way. Before we pray, it's uh, good to see Pat Blake here today. Uh, she's been out sick. And then uh, let's see, uh, David. Uh, uh, where, where's he at? David Schoengall. There he is. Back from surgery, looking good, smiling. And so uh, we prayed for you. Glad that you're back. And so uh, let's pray for those who aren't able to be here due to sickness. And then uh, Michelle back over here. Where are you at, Michelle? Mark and Michelle. Mark. There's Michelle. She's back from uh, leg. And then this Michelle over here, uh, uh, newer to our church. But Michelle has surgery coming up this Thursday. So let's keep her in prayer for that upcoming uh, procedure as well. Ask God to give us a good time in this house. Pastor Mike, if you would come and pray for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy and the things that you give to us so freely. Thank you for this house of worship, uh, God. And we ask that you'd, uh, Lord, meet with us this morning and, Lord, uh, bless us with the message. Lord, encourage us and challenge us in your ways, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your hymnals again, if you would, and turn to hymn 538, Bringing in the Sheaves. We'll sing the entire song. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the new tide and the dewy, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Number two, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the saddles, fearing neither clouds nor wintry chilling breeze. By and by the harvest and our labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Number three. Going forth with weeping, sowing for the Master, though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's over, He will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. All right, ushers, we're going to have you make your way forward. Come all the way to the front, please. And we'd like to take a moment and greet those who are visiting with us today. And so if you are a guest with us today, whether it's your first time here at our church or just your first time in a very long time, if you wouldn't mind, just slip up your hand real quick. We'd love to give you a connection card, and um, good to see you back there, Matthew. And uh, let's see, Mark's got a friend with him here today. Mark, what's your fr- uh, you want to introduce your friend for us? Very good. Good to have you here, David. Glad you came. 
And uh, very good. Let's see. Uh, met someone else on the way, right over here. Very good. Sean, good to have you here, Sean. And he was invited by the Bidats. I said to him on the way, and I said, okay, well, it's good to see that the Bidats have told me they have a friend. Here he is. So uh, it's real. Good job, JR. Glad you got your friend here today. Excellent. If you've got one of those cards, if you wouldn't mind, fill that out and uh, drop that in the offering plate in a few minutes when it comes by. Ushers, i got another job here for you, so if you can put those down and make your way, back, make your way up toward me, I'm going to give you something here. I have something I want to give to every family of the church. And uh, a little slip of paper here. Okay, uh, this is for those who regularly attend here and are members here. If you're visiting, you can tune out for a couple of minutes, all right? Um, uh, if you have looked around and noticed, there's been an emphasis put on parking lot improvement. And uh, we're working to uh, modernize our facilities to beautify the house of the Lord. I preached a sermon about that last Sunday evening. I'll be completing that sermon tonight out of the book of Haggai. Uh, Haggai, through the message of God, reprimanded the people of God because they were beautifying their own houses while the temple was left unbuilt and falling apart. And so we, everybody look up here at me while you're, uh, if, if you've already gotten yours, if you're getting yours, and obviously you don't have to give me your attention quite yet, but we have an obligation to take care of this property. It was given to us by God in a very special way. If you know the history of our church, you know that God provided this church at just a cutthroat rate uh, back, in the, um, uh, back in the 1980s. And uh, this property has been a place of gathering and worshiping the Lord uh, and all of those kind of things for many, many years. Many times renovations have been done. Originally, the auditorium was upstairs in the fellowship hall. And then in 2000, uh, the Lord moved Pastor Brown, the church's founding pastor, to begin construction on this property. Many of you reached in your pockets back then and gave. Uh, just to be very blunt, our property is sort of stuck in the 1990s. The paint on the wall is um, that of the 90s. Um, the flooring is uh, discolored in some places. Our parking lot is spidered and falling apart. We have an obligation to take care of this property, one, and two, to pass it on to the next generation so that is beautified. So you've gotten a slip of paper there. And so um, uh, if you want to jot this date down on the card somewhere, we're trying to raise $20,000 by March 25th so we can uh, fix our parking lot and put a new sign out front. And uh, uh, we could... Uh, push and ask for people that have the means to give to just two or three people to cover the whole thing. But I don't think that pleases the Lord. I think God is more pleased when everybody sacrifices and gives something. And again, this is not meant for the people visiting our church, but for the people who are on the membership role and would consider White Oak Baptist Church their home church. My wife and I are going to pray about what God will have us give toward this and give sacrificially toward this. I do believe that if you give to God sacrificially, and he's going to bless you, and he's going to make sure your needs are met. And um, uh, so I want everybody to take this home, talk to their spouse about it, and over the next week or two, you'll tear off the smaller section, and you'll fill that out and drop that on the plate. If you'll notice, there's no line for a name. This will be done anonymously. But this will help us to be able to plan for how much money is going to be given so that we can uh, know how to plan as far as if we need to raise funds beyond just what's going to be put in the plate. And so if everybody will give something, then um, we'll get there really quick. 
up on the screen during the announcement time and then in the pre-service and then out on the screen in the lobby, there will be a digital thermometer that will be filled up along the way as money is put in the plate, and uh, that will show you our progress. And so will you go home and pray and ask God what he'd have you do to help us to beautify our facilities? The uh, left part of that is for you to keep so you can be reminded of what you have committed to give uh, to the Lord's work in the beautifying of the house of God. All right, with that said, we're going to have our choir come and sing for us. again turn to hymn number three come thou fount hymn number three we'll do the first and the last come thou fount of every blessing turn my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues of love. 
praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Number three. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a feather, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You may be seated. If you uh, would take your bulletins out, ushers, if you please make your way forward. For the collection of the offering, visitors, if you would drop off that connection card in the offering plate as the ushers make their way by. Uh, in the bulletin, just to highlight uh, one of the Sunday school classes upstairs at 945 is the Sweetheart Couples class. They're going through a book called... Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? Uh, it's a very good, great class for married couples. So if you're not involved in a Sunday school class and you want to learn how to grow your marriage and glorify the Lord with your marriage, uh, just come on out, 945, upstairs in the fellowship hall. Pastor Lejeune is teaching a lesson on uh, Are We There Yet? through the discipleship series. So encourage you guys, please come on out for that, uh, married couples. If I could have Mike Jankowski pray for this morning's offering, please. Abide in his shadow for life. 
Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Thank you for that special. Galatians chapter 1. To all the, the adult dating and married couples, let me really, really push you, encourage you to sign up for our Valentine banquet February 10th at 6 o'clock at the Oranoke Country Club. And we have quite a night planned for you. We had our men's rally yesterday. How many of you men came to the men's rally? You just hold your hand up there for me. And what a great time we had with that. The Word of God was preached. Uh, we talked about Christian manhood. And uh, we uh, enjoyed a, a hearty meal and then uh, laughed at some, some, some appropriate male humor. Uh, there was nothing inappropriate about it, but I doubt you ladies would have found it all that funny. Uh, but uh, we had a good time as men. And then, um, uh, so and get involved with our activities around here. And I promise you the, uh, the couple's, uh, couple's uh, Valentine banquet will be uh, very much enjoyed by you. Your marriage will be strengthened. Uh, you'll... Uh, it's one of the best things you could do around the Valentine's Day. I don't really get into all the paganism side of the Valentine's Day. A lot of our holidays we celebrate are um, kind of follow uh, pagan roots. By the way, that would include the days of the week. Sunday, God of the Sun. Monday, God of the Moon. And so, um, uh, but nonetheless, we, we are citizens, uh, rather we're citizens of heaven and we're just sojourners passing through the world. And so sometimes we're force to use some of their lingo, but nonetheless, the idea of love, it comes from God, and uh, marriage comes from God, and so you need to do those things that strengthen up your marriage, and so uh, be involved in that, those of you that are married and dating, and you'll, uh, you'll be glad you did. You can sign up for that on the back. Please don't forget to sign up if you're planning on going. 
If you leave and forget, text one of us on the staff or call the church office and make sure we get your name down. That way we can plan. I was sharing with my Sunday school class this morning that um, uh, there are two rooms at the Oranoke Country Club. And as of right now, we're the only people that have booked for that day. If someone else books and they've got a party bigger than us, then they'll get the prettier room. And we'll get the room that isn't quite as pretty. And so both rooms are nice, but one room is definitely uh, nicer than the other. So we need everybody to sign up so we can uh, lock down the, uh, the, the bigger, nicer room. Amen. All right, Galatians 1, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be looking at verse 6 down through verse 9. This will be a launching point for us. We'll be looking at a lot of other Bible verses. And I hope to answer a whole lot of questions and confusion on the topic of the Bible this morning. And so this will be a very unique uh, sermon. If you're first time at our church, I would encourage you to come back. I think you'll enjoy the sermon today. Most of my sermons are um, uh, a little different than this one. But again, I believe this is a necessary sermon. We'll read responsibly. We'll read the even verses aloud, and I will, or rather the odd verses aloud. The odd verses aloud. I will read the even verses alone, and you can follow along there in your Bible. I'll begin in verse 6, and we'll begin together in verse 7. The Bible says in verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from the him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The title of the message this morning is, Why the King James Version of the Bible, or Why the KJV? And so I'm going to give you quite a bit of background and history on the Bible and help you understand why we use that version and solely that Bible alone at our church. Let's pray. God, I ask this morning that you would give me clarity of mind, conciseness of speech. Lord, I pray that if there are things in my notes that you want me to leave out, that you would move in my spirit and uh, help me to do that. Lord, if there are things that are not in my notes that you want me to say, then Lord, move in my heart uh, for that as well. God, while I ask that my tongue be anointed, and while I say the things that you want, I also pray that you would anoint the ears of the listeners. No doubt, uh, in a crowd this size, there are people who are fatigued. Uh, their schedule has wore them out. Uh, they're lacking sleep. And Lord, uh, they may be tempted to fall asleep. But Lord, I pray that you would give them uh, sustained energy. And Lord, uh, may they have both a listening ear and a discerning heart. And I pray, God, as the truth goes forward today, you'd help us to grasp it, understand it, and then accept it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's an old preacher named Curtis Hudson. He pastored a large church down in suburbia Atlanta back in the 50s and 60s, and I believe the 70s as well. He had a sermon entitled this, Things that are different are not the same. You say, Pastor, duh. (laughs) Things that are different are not the same. Now, while that might sound like an obvious statement, that is a great subtitle for this sermon. Um, There are over 200 versions of the Bible in the English language. You say, well, pastor, you know, they're all God's word. No, they're not. Things that are different are not the same. Now, let me put you back on your heels if you use something other than the King James this morning. We're off the get-go. Um, did you know that in order to copyright a Bible, 
any work. It has to be at least 10% different from another work. And so I would ask you this. Are there 200 different ways of saying a verse? There aren't. Why are there so many Bibles out there in the English language? Well, I'm going to get into that today. I'm going to answer that question. Just to quickly recap before we jump into the the message here. um, And I don't have time to to uh, go back over this and re-explain it. If you did not hear my sermon two Sundays ago or last Sunday, let me encourage you to go on our YouTube channel and watch those or to um, uh, go on our website and you can just listen to the audio and you'll be caught up to speed on where we are. But I'll give you basically a one-paragraph synopsis of both sermons, okay? January 14th, two Sundays ago, we looked closely at the inspiration or the giving of the Bible from God and to man. God verbally breathed out the Bible uh, to his authors, and 39 or 40 men wrote down the Bible that you have there in front of you, uh, if you have a King James, again, more about that in a minute, but uh, wrote down all of the Bible. It was already written in heaven. God used secretaries or men to pin down the words that he wanted uh, for us to have on earth. So we talked about how that the original manuscripts written by the prophets, by the apostles, was given to us for, uh, directly from God in every word. Every word that was written in the Bible came from God into man. The Bible claims that outside evidence supports that. Again, go back and listen to that sermon and you can um, uh, be uh, caught up to speed on that. Last Sunday we looked at, uh, we looked closely at God's very nature to be a preserver. We looked at throughout the whole Bible how that God preserves or safeguards or keeps in a perfect form the things that he loves. We talked about, I think, seven or eight different things the Bible says that God preserves. And we know that the Bible says that God uh, uh, values his own word, the Bible, above his very name. If that's the case and God's nature is to reserve, then clearly God would preserve. The Bible, on top of that, Psalm 12, 6 and 7 promises us that God would preserve his word for all generations. Other verses say the same thing, but Psalm 12, 6 and 7 is very explicit about that. The title of last Sunday's sermon was The Need for an Every Word Bible. The Need for an Every Word Bible. Throughout this sermon this morning, we will look at uh, uh, several frail arguments that non-KJV people raise against the King James Version of the Bible. We will also see how that Satan has worked to counterfeit and confuse mankind. And he's done this ever since the Garden of Eden. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Satan's game is to take something that God creates that's good to produce counterfeits and to confuse people with those things. While it is God's nature to preserve, watch this now, it is Satan's nature to counterfeit. God loves to preserve, Satan loves to counterfeit. Now, Uh, If you're here today and you are set on this issue, you think, Pastor, I don't need to hear this. I've done all the research and study. I know the topic. I know the issue. And so I can sleep through the sermon. I'm here to tell you, no, you can't. All right. Um, I'm going to share some things with you outside of this issue and try to make it practical for everything. Satan is sly. He he has subtle ways. uh, And this is no more evidenced in the many, many varieties of flawed Bibles that can be bought in our English language. I propose that many Christians are falling for a variety of Satan's counterfeits. He loves to sell you on an inferior product. What God offers is better. 
But you can only have it through your faithful commitment to Him. And I'm not just talking about a Bible. I'm talking about Christian values. I'm talking about quality of life. Satan's ways always divert you from what's best. Even though they look like they are better than what God offers. Satan wants you to believe that you can uh, give in to the, the impulses of your flesh and come out ahead of what God wants you to have. But don't forget, Satan is a liar and he is the father of all lies. We will see this morning that many, many Christians believe that they can have a Bible that is supposedly, supposedly easier to read than God's choice of the King James. Satan uses the it's easier to understand lie above all else to keep people from uh, God's chosen book for the English speaking people. Now, I, I want to quickly address this, uh, the idea that other versions of the Bible are easier to read. Not all of them. In fact... Uh, the King James Version of the Bible has been rated to be on a 6th grade reading scale. You say, no. Yep. Once a 6th grader is explained how the ye's and these and thines and thou's work, it's on a 6th grade reading scale. The uh, New American Standard Bible has been rated to be on a 10th grade reading scale. There goes that whole lie about the King James being harder to understand. Um... By the way, you're taking notes. I'm encouraging you to write this down. If a personal pronoun begins with a Y in the Bible, it's plural. Begins with a T, it's singular. That's a great thing to know. Jesus said in John 3, Marvel not that I say unto thee, singular, Nicodemus. Marvel not that I say to Nicodemus, to thee. Ye, not just you, Nicodemus, ye, all of you. Everybody must be born again. You see the conciseness there? Marvel not that I say unto the singular, ye plural, must be born again. You look at any other version of the Bible in English, it says, Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Now, which one's more concise? Which one's more accurate? Let's look at six thoughts that will help us understand the history of the Bible from its original writing down into our language today. Let me just say here, Keep an open mind. Some of you have already made your mind made up, your mind made up that no matter what I say today, you're not going to change. And I would say I'm going to present to you factual evidence, not, not abstract evidence, not arguable evidence, factual evidence. And if you want more data, if you want to see my sources, I would be more than happy to share them with you as I have them back in my office. All right, so let's jump in this morning. I'm going to be doing the uh, slideshow with my clicker today because... Uh, it is uh, uh, complicated. I told Brother Matt before the service that uh, you, he would have to be able to read my mind to be able to advance the slides properly. So I've got a clicker. I'm going to do this. This thing is about 90% accurate. So if we have a delay or a problem, uh, be patient there. All right, number one, and let's look at this. Let's look at the, here it comes. Well, maybe it's 20% accurate. Oh, there it is. Okay. The completion of the Scriptures. Take your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 22, the very, very, very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 19. Very, very last chapter of the Bible. God, as He's having the Bible completed, as He's having the last words penned into the book, the last chapter of the Bible that uh, He wants recorded in Scripture, He has a very strong warning uh, two people about his book. 
Look at verse 19. And, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book, in this book. He which testifieth these things say, uh, saith, Surely I come quickly, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. So God, through the pen of John, had this advice, this warning, Do not mess up my book. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't change it. i got to say that I would be scared to death to be a translator of the Bible. Terrified. Terrified I'd mess something up and get my name blotted out of the book. Um, now, again, this verse is, uh, is talking to those who do it belligerently or do it on purpose. All right, we'll talk about people that did that and have done that here in a moment. God has very carefully had this place in the last chapter of the last book that he dictated to man. God does not want anyone fooling with his book. Not even one jot, which is a Hebrew letter, or one tittle, which is part of a Hebrew letter. All right, let me give you a... a, a I'm gonna, we're going to intertwine... We're going to intertwine here a timeline of the Bible throughout the message this morning. So let's get the first one up there here. Uh, here we have the life of Christ all the way down to 2000 A.D. Obviously, we're uh, toward the end of the timeline there with the 2018. All right? If you can't see it from the back, I can email you the pictures later. My clicker is not... Oh, there it is. Okay, so the New Testament books... Uh, were written right after the life of Christ was over. The book of Revelation was completed there shortly after the life of Christ. And then uh, after the uh, Bible was completed and uh, they figured out which books were the right books and which books were the wrong books. Again, we talked about that in last week's sermon. I'd refer you back to that. Careful copies were made and spread all around the world. So uh, from uh, uh, about 200 A.D. or after Christ uh, till uh, uh, late uh, uh, near 1,000, Hundreds of, of accurate and some inaccurate copies were made. The inaccurate copies were pushed to the side. The accurate copies were, uh, uh, were, uh, were, were held and kept as the standard uh, of, of what was right. So there you have the completion of the Scriptures, and then you have the copying of the Scriptures. Notice number two. Let's look at the corruption of the Alexandrians. The corruption of the Alexandrians. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Here we have the early church up and moving, and um, uh, you have the uh, the early church there in Jerusalem uh, mushroomed in size from 120 people in the upper room. Some biblical historians have guesstimated, estimated that the early church of Jerusalem, the first church, grew in size of well over 100,000 people in a very short time. There began to become complaints against the church that uh, the needs of the weak and the widows were being neglected. And so the men uh, there selected out deacons uh, to be uh, a part of the uh, uh, taking care of those needs so that the pastors of the church could be given to studying the Bible. Acts chapter 6, we find one of those first deacons, Stephen. The Bible says this about uh, uh, Stephen in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now again... You can't do anything great without there being critics. Look at verse nine. Then there arose certain of the synagogues, which is called the um, uh, which is called the synagogue of the, of the Libertines and uh, Cyrenians and 
Alexandrians and of them of uh, Cilicia and of Asia disputing with Stephen. So if you believe in the doctrine of first mention, I think that's a good thing. You get the idea here that the Alexandrians, along with all these other people, they weren't good folks. They were standing up and opposing Stephen. Now, these same people would either be part of the group that had Stephen stoned for his faith. At the very least, they endorsed it and were thankful for it. If they weren't standing there throwing stones at Stephen himself. Now, some, uh, 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 some, some uh, thoughts about here about the Alexandrians. And this is, this is fundamental to the message. So make sure you understand what I'm about to say here. The Alexandrians from, uh, from ancient history books tell us that they were very much like a cult similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses of today's time. They denied the deity of Christ, and they denied that he had actually risen from the dead. They took the New Testament, and they made 6,000 changes to it. 6,000 changes to it. All right, back to the timeline here. 240 A.D., Alexandrian cult, Make 6,000 changes to the Bible, okay? Um, we have from that, give me the next slide there, Brother Matt. We have from that, uh, in 350 A.D., uh, of all the Alexandrian Bibles that were made, there were three survivors. Um, go give me the next slide there. Three surviving manuscripts survived that of the Alexandrian Bible. So they made 6,000 changes, and there were three copies left uh, from 240 A.D. that made it into... 350 A.D. and uh, those were the Sinaiticus. Uh, uh, I'm sorry here, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, and the Alexandrian uh, uh, texts. So let me give you some. Um, uh, again, this is fundamental to the message. Let me give you some history on these three manuscripts. All right, the Sinaiticus was found in a trash can in a monastery. Somebody walked in and saw it there, and they said, "What's that?" And they said, oh, "I don't know. It's been sitting there for years." And they picked it up and, oh, this is an Alexandrian Bible with all those cult changes. The Vaticanus was found in the back of a Vatican library and the Alexandrian was found uh, in an Egyptian library. Just sitting there collecting dust, nobody doing anything with it. Why? It had been rejected because it wasn't the right text. Okay? Between the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus alone, there were over 3,000 differences just between those two texts. Monks took these three manuscripts and translated them into one Latin scroll and called it the Latin Vulgate. Give me the next slide there. The Latin Vulgate, 380 AD. So a bunch of monks sit down with these three contradicting manuscripts and they make from that, they translate them into Latin and they make uh, the Latin Vulgate. Now, by the way, the Latin Vulgate was a very good translation from a very corrupt source. Very, very good translation from a very corrupt source. Okay, give me the next slide there. Westcott and Hort would take these same three, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandria, and Mr. Westcott and Mr. Hort, we'll talk about them more in a little bit here. And in 1896, they would come out with a Westcott and Hort Greek text. Now again, these come from a cult in the Alexandria. It's very, very, very fundamental that you get this and that you understand this. A lot of people will go to the bookstore and they buy a Bible that is the easiest for them to read and understand, and they don't understand where they came from. All right, uh, point number three here. Let's look at the collection of the received text. The collection of the received text. Oh, one more slide there. 1582. Uh, I forgot to give you this one here. 1582. What happened was uh, the um, uh, you had 
you had uh, these, the Latin Vulgate here, which was put together by those monks. The Catholic Church had that translated into English, and that's called the Dewey English Translation of the Latin Vulgate, and it is still the official Catholic Bible today. If you go to a Catholic church and you buy a Catholic Bible, it comes from the Latin Vulgate, which came from the Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrian, and that was put out uh, for English speakers in 1582. All right, uh, point number three of the message today is the collection of the received text. The collection of the received text. Now, everybody with me so far? Okay, for a collection of centuries, the only Bibles were in the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic text. They're original languages that they were written in. The Catholic Church worked very hard to keep the Bibles away from the common people. Now, we may have some people here who have Catholic leanings and tendencies. And again, I'm not here to blast the Catholic Church. That's not the point of the message today. I'm sharing with you factual history. All right. And if you don't believe me, you can go back and do your own homework and study. It's all there. It's all there. All right. And again, happy to share with you my sources after church if you'd like. Um, The Catholic Church worked very hard to keep the Bible away from the common people. Their attitude was, and really still is now, let us tell you what the Bible says. That's their attitude. How many of you here come from a Catholic background? Let me see your hands. How many understand that they really don't want you reading the Bible? There's no push to read the Bible. Now, again, it's available, but you're never told like you hear from our church, read the Bible. I, look, I'll preach entire sermons about you need to read your Bible every day. You will never hear that sermon in a Catholic church. And the truth is, the only reason why they ever printed an English Bible is because they were forced to. They didn't want to. They were forced to. More about that in a few minutes. And so the Catholic Church worked to keep the people in the dark. And really, you go back into the Renaissance era when people lived very base and very uh, without culture, it was because they did not have a Bible to teach them morality. People were kept in the dark. People were not taught how to read. And they went to church. The Bible was read in Latin. They didn't have any idea what the Bible said. And uh, the priest would tell them what the translation was. Well, uh, insert a man by the name of William Tyndale. What William Tyndale and really even Martin Luther. Uh, let me talk about Martin Luther real quick. Uh, Martin Luther publishes 95 theses on the Catholic Church door as well as uh, uh, he worked to translate the Bible into the German language. So while this revolt is beginning with Martin Luther, William Tyndale gets on board as well. And Martin uh, uh, William Tyndale was a linguist and a Greek scholar, and he saw the need to get the Bible into the English language. Let me read from you here uh, 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 from one of my sources. Listen to this amazing story about William Tyndale. Tyndale was, a well, uh, was well suited to his task. Uh, Spallation, a friend of Martin Luther, wrote this in his diary of what Professor Herman uh, 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 Bastius uh, told him about Tyndale and his New Testament. Here's what he said. The work was translated by an Englishman staying there with two others, a man so skilled in the seven languages, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, and French, that whichever he spoke, you would have supposed it was his native tongue. By the time Tyndale was betrayed by his friend, imprisoned and nearly frozen during a cold winter in his cell, he had translated the entire New Testament into English, along with some Old Testament books, and had trained at least two others to carry on his work. But he wasn't finished. Even when he was burnt at the stake on October 6, 1536, he cried out prophetically, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. (laughs) 
Now, what source did Tyndale use to translate from? I can tell you this. He did not use the Latin Vulgate, which came from those corrupt texts. Now, you may remember from our timeline, we'll put it back up here in a minute, but you may remember from our timeline, you had accurate copies of the Bible made up top, and then you have the Alexandrian cult Bibles down below. The three that survived returned into the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is not what William Tyndale used. William Tyndale used the copies that were made and accurately kept that were passed down generation by generation. That's what he took and used to translate. Now, uh, as the Catholic Church saw this Martin Luther, William Tyndale revolt, uh, uh, and, and they saw that these men were beginning to uncover truth, they put together a group of priests so that they could terminate the revolt, even if that meant killing of these, quote-unquote, rebellious leaders. This group of people were called the Jesuit priesthood. Why was the Jesuit priesthood originally established? For the very purpose of eliminating people like William Tyndale. And they did. It was the Jesuit priests that killed William Tyndale. It was the Jesuit priests who labeled Martin Luther and many uh, like him a heretic. Now when King James set out to have the Bible translated into the English language, these Jesuit priests plotted to kill King James. In fact, historically, you can look up and do research on the gunpowder plot. These men put barrels and barrels of gunpowder under a platform where King James would be giving a speech. And moments before he was to go up there and give the speech, this was uncovered and his life was saved. Why were they trying to kill King James? Because they didn't want him translating the Bible in English. He had already committed uh, draw, uh, gathering together these men and they were aware of what he was trying to do. And the Catholic Church did not want the English-speaking people to have an accurate copy of the Bible. So they plotted to kill King James, but God divinely saw that his life was saved. The Catholic Church knew there was very little they could do to stop the production of the King's Bible. So they decided to produce their own and that's why we have the 1582 Dewey English Bible. They wanted to get a Bible out there before King James could finish his Bible. And so they put out a Bible that was not accurate to deceive the people. The Catholic Church was translated, um, the Catholic Bible rather was translated from the same Latin Vulgate that came from the Alexandrian cult. The same Alexandrians that withstood Stephen and were no, uh, and were at least, uh, if not complicit in seeing the servant of God stoned, they were at least complicit. The Dewey English Bible is the same one that the Catholic Church still uses today. Alright, number four in the message here, notice the credentials of the KJV translators. The credentials of the KJV translators. If there's other timeline slides there, just skip those and let's uh, move on there. Alright, number four, the credentials of the KJV translators. So, what qualifications did the men have that translated the King James Version of the Bible? I can't get into all of them today. We could be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon, me reading all 54, I believe it was, men and their credentials. But can I just give you one credential that far outshines every other translating scholar? Okay, uh, the Bible in English, or rather the New Testament, was written in Koine Greek. Now, that is a language that is no longer used today. Different than regular Greek. All right? Koine Greek is not spoken by a single human being alive today. Not one. However, all 54 
men who translated the Bible in English spoke fluent Koine Greek. Fluent. I'd say that qualifies them to translate the Bible. Now, what I don't like are people who are supposed Greek experts. They want to critique the King James Bible. My friend, your knowledge of the Greek language is kindergarten compared to the men who translated the Bible. I heard a preacher preach on this topic one time. His name is Norris Belcher. He pastors down in Maryland. He's got a big church. runs a couple thousand. He preached at a big conference, and he was talking to pastors who like to critique the King James Bible. And the title of his keynote sermon for the conference was, Hush, You Don't Speak Greek. I thought it was a great title. And he went on and talked about this, how all 54 men were fluent in Koine Greek and totally fluent in English. And that alone allowed them to be capable of taking the Bible and translating it. Now, um, what did these men do? They gathered together... This is so key to understand. They gathered together 5,000 different copies. They actually gathered together more than that. But what they found in their gathering together, in their research and preparing to translate the Bible, they gathered together all these different copies of the Bible, and they found that 5,000 of them agreed perfectly, except for some spelling of some names. And they sit in there, and they've got 5,000 different copies from all over the world that's sitting there in front of them. They're seeing that every word matches up except for some spelling of some names. And and some of these are in different languages at this point, but even the ones that were in the original language, 5,000 copies matching up except for some spelling of some names. And they step back and go, huh, what do you know? God really did preserve His Word. Just like He said He would. Wow! This is amazing. This collection of 5,000 manuscripts, was the collection they used to translate the King James Bible. Now, let me just make a very obvious statement. Would you rather have a Bible that comes from an accurate source or a Bible that comes from a cult source? I don't know that I have to really share a whole lot more with you today. I think now you're beginning to see the layout here. Now, your Bible, if you have an NIV or a Good News for Modern Man or an NASV or an ESV, uh, CEV, and there's, again, 200 different ones. Um, they didn't come from the Latin Vulgate, but they did come from another source that the Latin Vulgate came from. More about that in a minute. Let's put the next slide up there for me. Should be... Oh, is there no picture slide? Can you go back and grab the, um, the picture slide there? There it is. Okay. So 1611, A.D., 5,000 copies known as Textus Receptus, or... Another name for Texas Receptus is the received text. All right. They all agree in everything except some name spellings. This was the source that these men used to translate uh, the Bible into English. The, these Bibles had to pass 14 different tests. Each, so they took the Bible and they broke it up into sections. So they worked in teams of two. They broke the Bible up into 27 sections and each team worked to translate their section of the Bible. Each single piece that was translated had to be reviewed by the other 52 men and it had to be agreed upon by all of them. And if they reached a spot where they didn't know exactly how to translate from Greek to English, they all had to agree on it unanimously on what that translation was. By the way, if you're looking through an English-speaking or a King James Bible, you'll notice that there are some words in italics 
You might wonder what that is, all right? Either they were put there uh, because the translation from Greek to English didn't quite work and they needed to provide the same clarity in English as there was in uh, uh, Greek. And so that was put there in, in italics. Uh, or uh, 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 the, the word they put there, they weren't comfortable calling an exact word-for-word translation. And oftentimes, we go back and look at it now, and we see it was an exact word-for-word translation. And I would say this about these translators. They were very, very careful to be extremely honest with their work. Very careful. Very careful. I believe that God had His hand in helping them select those words. Now, I'm not going as far as to say that God told them what words to put down, but I believe that God had His hand in helping them pick and choose those words so that they would be as accurate and clear and perfect in English as they were in Greek. So what were their credentials? They all spoke Koine Greek. They were set aside in private settings, and they had the Bible divided up amongst them. They worked to translate it. These Bibles, uh, these translations had to pass 14 different tests, very rigorous uh, work. They had to be approved by the other 52 men outside of their group in, in making sure that uh, every word was read and analyzed against the Greek and uh, was, was accurate. No other translation, no other English translation has ever gone through such a rigorous and careful process. Now, this is also important to understand. On top of all this, God used political pressure on the king of England to push him to have his perfect word translated at a time in history when the English language had reached its peak. There are people who say the English Bible is too hard to read. And uh, it's not relevant in 2018 when it's 200 years old. Actually, Brother Vernon and I went to a conference and we heard someone raise that very uh, objection uh, a while back. Here's what I'll say is that if you study languages... Uh, you understand that languages begin very primitive and they grow in their complexity. I'm just talking about over the history of the world. They grow in their complexity to a place where they reach peak performance. And then they begin to go downhill. Have you noticed how much slang is mixed into our, and idioms are mixed into our conversations today? You know why? Our English language is on the downward slope. I don't want a Bible that's on the downward slope. I want a Bible that sits on top of the peak. You'll understand this. You say, but those aren't words I use. Well, how about you work at it a little bit? How about you work at it a little bit? How about you get a dictionary that's from the 1600s, like the Oxford English Dictionary, and if you don't know what the word means, you go back and look it up. That's too much work. You know, sometimes to find and uncover truth, it takes a little bit of work. But it's worth it. It's worth it. The whole argument that it's too hard to understand and, and you know, the words N and TH and, and all this type thing. Listen, the, God had His Word translated in English at a time when the English language was at its peak performance. And i got to say, thank you, thank you, thank you to my God for having that done. Now, one of the other arguments that non-King James Version users throw is that we don't actually use the 1611 version. How many of you heard this argument before? Do you know they're right? We don't use the, the finished work that was first put out. You say, oh, they made changes, so it wasn't perfect. The changes they made, they didn't actually change any words. All right, let me give you the three things they changed in the revisions that were put out after 1611. Here are the three things that were changed. Again, none of it has to do with the actual translation. The font was changed for clarity. All right? Um, if I go onto my computer right now and take the sermon that I printed on paper and I select it all and I change the font, have I changed any words? I've just changed the font. 
Right? The, the font that was being used in the original 1611 uh, made con- some letters confusing and made words hard to understand. So they changed the font. There was some misspelling of words and there were print errors uh, in, in publishing that were fixed. And then they was, there was some punctuation that was added. That was it. No words were changed. The actual translation was never, ever touched. And so the Bible you hold in your lap, if it's a King James Version of the Bible, is word for word the same translation as the 1611. Over the next 300 years, and here's another solid point I want to make, over the next 300 years, the following preachers would use the King James Version of the Bible. Preachers like John Wesley, Charles Wesley, John, uh, George Whitfield, part of America's First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, Gypsy Smith, Jonathan Goforth, famous missionary, C.H. Spurgeon, uh, 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 David Livingston, um, uh, who was a uh, uh, who was an explorer and a, one of Africa's greatest missionaries, Peter Cartwright, William Carey, the father of modern missions, Charles G. Finney, J. Wilbur Chapman, C.H. Spurgeon, C.I. Schofield, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, J. Frank Norris, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, Sam Jones, and him writers like Isaac Watts, who wrote Amazing Grace, Fanny Crosby, who wrote a large percentage of the hymnals in your hymn book in front of you, Philip Bliss, who also wrote a large percentage. All of these people were King James only people, and God used these and others, other less known preachers to see tens of millions of people saved in the first 300 years after the King James Bible was published. Tens of millions saved. Number five, we see the comparisons, the comparisons of the versions. Now, I want to show you some things here, but before we do that, the Catholic Church, over that 300-year span, had lost its control over their false message. But they had not given up. I'm going to share some very disturbing things with you here. Listen closely. Insert Mr. Westcott and insert Mr. Hort. These two men came along and gathered the same three cultish Alexandrian manuscripts used to create the Latin Vulgate. And through that, they created what is now known as the Westcott and Hort Greek text. The arguments were, since it's older, it's better. Now, let me, uh, let me uh, kind of debunk that here for a minute. Their argument was, these manuscripts are older, so they're better. If I take a Bible that I never read and I put it right here, and let's say it's 20 years old and I've never really opened it. It was given to me as a gift and I lay it right here. All right. And then I have my Bible, which I read every day. I make notes in every day. And I've owned it for five years and I set it right here and it's falling apart. Does older mean better? The one that's accurate gets used more, right? And so if it's older, that must mean it's not getting used as much not getting used as much, maybe that's because it's not accurate. Remember how we talked about last week in the preservation of the Bible, how that they rejected copies and they got pushed out? You know what? Those copies sat on shelves if they weren't uh, destroyed. And then the copies that were accurate were continually used. They wore out. They were thrown away. God didn't see a reason in keeping them around because His Word was preserved in other copies. So this idea of older being better is a farce. It's a lie. 99% of the English Bibles that you find in bookstores today have been translated from this Westcott and Hort text. Let me share with you what these two men, uh, who these two men were. I'm going to share with you some quotations that have come from letters 
that they personally wrote. Again, these statements come from books compiled by their own sons and were their own handwritten letters. Documented, okay? These books were published by their children. And so these weren't, it wasn't that someone heard them say this. No, no, no. They wrote this down themselves, okay? So let me read some quotations for, for you here. This is from Mr. Hort's letter. He believed that the Roman Catholic Church was better than gospel preaching or evangelical churches. See if you draw the same conclusion out of this quote. Again, from Mr. Hort's letter, he said, The pure Roman views seem to me nearer and more likely to lead to the truth than the evangelical. Sounds like to me he was a Catholic. Hort, by his own words, did not believe in the authority of the Bible. Listen to this quote, again, from his own hand on paper. The positive doctrines, even of the evangelicals, seem to me perverted rather than untrue. There are, I fear, more differences between us on the subject of authority, and especially the authority of the Bible. So the man making the Westcott and Hort text, one of them, one of the two men, didn't even believe that the Bible was accurate. Doesn't sound like the guy I want coming up with my Greek text. Hort said in another letter to Westcott that the concept of Christ forgiving our sins was universal heresy. Listen to this. Certainly nothing can be more unscriptural than the doctrine, than the modern limiting of Christ's bearing our sins and suffering to his death. But indeed, that is only one us aspect of an almost universal heresy. So according to Mr. Hort, the idea of Jesus taking your sins away on the cross is universal heresy. Here's another quote from Hort that questions the forgiving power of the cross. The fact is, I do not see how God's justice can be satisfied without every man's suffering in his own person the full penalty for his sins. Jesus can't take your sins away. You've got to suffer for your own, he says. What about Mr. Westcott? What did he have to say? Westcott didn't believe in miracles. Again, Steve, you draw the same conclusion I did out of this quote. He said in a letter uh, that he wrote, I never read an account of a miracle, but I seem instinctively to feel its improbability and discover some want of evidence in the account of it. So whether there's a miracle, it's really just a magic trick, and there's really something going on behind the curtain that we're not able to see, but there are no miracles in the Bible. He also didn't believe in the concept of heaven being a real place. Another one of quote written by his own hand, it saves us from the error of connecting the presence of Christ's glorified humanity with place. Heaven is a state. Heaven is not a place. You want this guy writing your Bible? Both Westcott and Hort, and this is really scary, all right, again, this is documented evidence. Westcott and Hort joined clubs that were involved in trying to make contact with dead spirits. These two guys got together. They drudged up these Alexandrian cult texts, and they put together the Westcott and Hort manuscript. Give me the next picture there, Brother Matt. Should be in the picture. Here it comes. Okay, 1875. You see there on the end. If you can't read it, I'll read it for you. 1875, Hort, Westcott and Hort created their own Greek manuscripts. If you are here today and you have something in your lap other than the King James Bible, it was translated from the, at least in part, Westcott and Hort text. That's scary. That's not good. That's not good. Now, um, give me the next slide there. Oh, back up one for me. Okay, I don't have it there. Well, I guess we'll get to it later. There should be one more timeline picture there. Can you, can you look for that and pull that up? 
thought I had these in order. My apologies. Here it is. 2000 AD, all right, that would be 18 years ago, more than 36,000 differences between the King James Version and other versions. You know what the Catholics' game was here? Let's put out one Bible a year. And since we can't get rid of the King James, we'll dilute the market with our own Bibles. If you're holding something in your lap other than a King James Bible, the Catholic Church has either directly or indirectly been involved in that. By the way, the NIV, the famous NIV, did you know that that was uh, the, the translators were assembled in the same Catholic monastery where the leader of the Jesuit priest got his education? You think that's an accident? That's scary. That's scary. All right, let's jump in and let me show you some differences between the Bibles here. Uh, go back to the um, uh, first one there. All right, okay. Here's what the King James Version says in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 12. It says, Ephraim compasseth me about with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. Notice the underlying bold in part here. But Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. All right, uh, give me the NIV version next here. Here's what the NIV says. And Judah is unruly against God. All right, back up the slide. Judah yet ruleth with God. Next slide. Judah is unruly against God. Isn't that kind of saying opposite things? Now, one's right and one's wrong. Next one. Genesis 27, 39-40. Uh, and Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. All right. So what are we gathering here? Isaac is uh, uh, telling Jacob that he's going to live off the fatness of the earth. And he's going to live off the dew from heaven. Give me the next slide, the NIV again. You dwell, uh, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. Again, saying the exact opposite that the King James is saying. Only one can be right. Give me the next one. A man that hath friends, we all know this verse, right? Must show himself friendly. What does that say? If you want friends, you've got to be a friendly guy. You antisocial people here, let me talk to you for a minute. If you're going to come here and sit on the pew and put your head down and during handshake time look down not make eye contact with anybody, don't leave and say we don't have a friendly church. All right. You want friends, you've got to make yourself friendly. Does everybody agree with that statement? Raise your hand if you agree with that statement. All right. Let's see what the NIV says. A man of many companions may come to ruin. Next, next, next slide there. New American Standard Bible. A man of too many friends comes to ruin. What? Next one. New Living Translation. There are friends who destroy each other. Same verse in the Bible. Now again, one of these is right and the rest of them are wrong. I happen to believe that the King James Bible got it right. Give me the next slide there. Matthew 7.14 Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life and few there be that find it. Let me make a very obvious statement. Going to heaven is simple, right? I got saved at four. I was four years old. Raised in church my whole life. Heard the gospel hundreds of times by the time I was four. As a four-year-old youngster, I bowed my head and received Christ as my Savior. It's not hard to get saved. Everybody agree with that statement? Good, I'm setting you up. Next slide. Revised Standard Version. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. To go to heaven, it's hard. Again, one of these is right, the other is wrong. Next slide. This one's key because here we see that God has very carefully and craftily put some major doctrine in this verse. 
And to make all men, King, King James Version again, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which, notice this, from the beginning, that's key, of the world, hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So what does this verse tell us? It tells us two doctrinal uh, key things. One, Jesus is God, okay, deity of God, and two, that Jesus was in the beginning creating the world. Do you know that those doctrines are well under attack in modern Bibles? Put up the next one for me. This is the contemporary English version. God, who created everything, wanted me to help everyone understand the mysterious plan that had always been hidden in his mind. Where is Jesus and where is from the beginning? They're gone. By the way, every single other version in the English language either deletes one of those two doctrines. Most of them, if they have it in there, will say something along the lines of, uh, uh, in ages past. Well, that's very different than from the beginning. Or they'll say from the beginning, but they'll leave out Jesus Christ. Is anyone getting the idea here that the Word of God is under attack by a, a, a Satan who counterfeits? Put the next slide up there for me. All right, so let's look at some omission of verses. And again, I'm only giving you a small sampling. Over 200 verses have been deleted out of the NIV Bible that are in the King James. And you know what their argument is? Well, it wasn't in the early manuscripts. No, no, no. It wasn't in the Alexandrian cult manuscripts, but it was in the early manuscripts. All right, let me give you some examples here. Uh, give me the next slide there. Mark 16, 9 through 20. If you have a version of this in the King James, I encourage you to turn over there right now. And you'll notice that either those verses are not in your Bible, or there's a footnote that says that they were added into later manuscripts. Again, just because the Alexandrians decided to delete that out in one of their three manuscripts, that doesn't mean that it wasn't in the early manuscripts. Next one there. Acts 8.37. If you have an NIV, you get to verse 37, and you go from verse 36 straight to verse 38. There's not even a 37 in there. And in other versions of the Bible, again, there will be a footnote. You look at the bottom, and it says, added later in other manuscripts. Anybody see that Satan attacks everything good God creates? Everything good God creates. The comparison of the versions. The comparison of the versions. I don't want to come across as a bad attitude Baptist. But I'm a little upset with Satan. Now he has duped so many English-speaking people, given them a false Bible that is filled with fallacies and errors. The time does not allow me today to dive into all of the credentials of the King James translators. Time does not allow me today to uh, really uh, address... Uh, all of the errors and fallacies in all the other English-speaking Bibles other than the King James. But can I tell you this, is that uh, there, are, there are contradictions and errors in every other version of the English Bible other than the King James. And either God has given us a word that has no contradictions in it, or He hasn't. And I believe that He promised in His word that He would. Now, there are two other, let me just say this quickly, because I know if I don't, I'm going to get this later. There are two other versions of the Bible in the English language that supposedly were translated from the received text. One of them came out, I believe, in the 1980s, maybe early 1990s. The other one just recently came out. They are the New King James Version. They claim that they translated from the received text. I, I, I don't know that I totally buy that, because they have so many similarities with non 
uh, Texas Receptus Bibles. The other one is one that just came out a, a year or two ago called the Modern English Version. Um, both of these are filled with errors. Or at the least, they are not as accurate as the King James. Someone handed me a Modern English Version and said, hey, this was translated from the Texas Receptus and it uses more uh, modern language. And so the very first thing I did when I got a copy of it is I opened up to John chapter 3 and I looked to see if it said in the marvel not that I say unto the singular, ye plural, must be born again. And guess how it was translated? Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. I said, oh, I don't want it. I said, it, 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 the pronoun usage is nowhere near as accurate. Now, I believe that the people who put out the MEV, that their intentions were pure and they were right. But i got to tell you that they do, do not understand the importance of, one, uh, uh, God having the Bible translated at a time in the English language is at its peak. And, two, they don't understand the usage of pronouns and the accuracy that the King James Bible gives us. Number six, and lastly, let's look at the counterfeits that Satan sells. Counterfeits that Satan sells. Everything good that God creates... Satan has created counterfeits. We talked about how God's nature is to preserve. Satan's nature is to destroy. God's nature is to give us authenticity. Satan's nature is to give us counterfeits. Even if you don't buy into what I'm selling you today with the Bible, and all the evidence I provided you, I, you can't deny the fact that Satan loves to deceive. He's called the deceiver in the Bible. Is it any surprise he would deceive us Deceive English-speaking folks with the wrong Bible. In fact, I would have been shocked if he hadn't tried. Would have been shocked. But the Bible isn't the only thing Satan offers that's a counterfeit. And I'm afraid that many Christians today, even King James-wielding Christians today, have fallen for one of Satan's other counterfeits. God gives us love. Love is selfless. Satan comes along and tries to sell us on lust. Lust is selfish. Lust is, if you love me, you would prior to marriage. Love says, since I love you, let's wait. Love says, my needs before yours in marriage and in parenting. Lust says, my needs first. Love says, I'm going to keep myself pure for my spouse and for God. Lust says, I'm going to look at the pretty lady or the, the handsome man walking past me with eyes of lust. Satan has sold us on lust, and it's all around us. God sells us on love. Satan's counterfeit appeals to the impulses of the flesh. God's requires Christian character, and it's far more rewarding. They both are four letters long. They both begin with L. But Satan has tripped up so many people with lust, getting them to believe that that's what love is. It's funny, you watch most Hollywood movies today, and the bedroom scene seems to identify what love is. And I'm here to tell you today that that is meant to be left between a husband and a wife. And that's not how it is in Hollywood. Well, Hollywood oftentimes portrays as lust. Here's another one of Satan's counterfeits, joy versus happiness. Joy comes from inward. It, it is available to every Christian and only to Christians. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. He gives you a reservoir of joy that you either t- choose to turn on or turn off. And boy, when it's on, the problems of life can rage around you. But the inward stimuli of the Holy Spirit continues to give you a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. 
Satan has come along and said, you don't need joy. Here's happiness. Depend on outward, external stimuli and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, find a funny joke or uh, find a way to be happy. Buy more things. That will give you happiness. And God says, no, no, no. While happiness uh, has its place, joy is what you really need. God offers inward peace. Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Peace. The Bible talks about a peace that passes all understanding. Satan comes along and says, you don't need peace. You can drown your sorrows in entertainment. Come home at night and turn on the TV, turn on those filthy, raunchy comedies and laugh. Turn on that music and let, your, let, your, uh, uh, let the music drown out the, 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 uh, the crying out of the sorrow of your soul. Bury those problems with outward entertainment. And God says, you don't need outward entertainment. I have inward peace for you if you'll come to me. The Bible and God offers us the solution of creation of how we got here. Satan has come along and sold us on a bill of goods, a bill of lies, on evolution. And uh, there is no real reason for uh, man to live because we're just an accident that exploded from a little dot in space. And God says, no, 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 I created the world with purpose and I have given you purpose and meaning on earth. God tells us that he wants us to have a relationship with him. Satan comes along with his counterfeit and says, you don't need a relationship with God, you need a religion about God. And God says, I don't like your religion, I want relationship. Creating counterfeits is just what Satan does. It's what he does. Today I'm here to tell you that if you're not careful, he'll dupe you. Just like he duped Adam and Eve in the garden. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Have you fallen for one of his phonies? You living off lust, happiness, outward entertainment? You, you consumed with religion? Or are you living off of love and joy and inward peace provided through the Holy Spirit and come, coming through a relationship with God? How about your version of the Bible? If you haven't been using the King James Version of the Bible, then will you start today? Listen, your preacher doesn't even study from other versions of the Bible. I don't own one. Digitally, they came on the Bible software I bought. I don't open them. I open them for this sermon to study to show you how bad they were. First, I've had this program for years. First time I've ever even opened up another version of the Bible. Why would I want to look at something that comes from a cult? If you have fallen for one of his other falsehoods, will you ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify it? Trade in his counterfeits for God's real things and enjoy the benefits of living an authentic life. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. If you're here today and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's the only way you can be saved. Satan wants to sell you the counterfeit that you can be good to get to heaven. Again, another one of Satan's lies. Another one of Satan's lies. He wants you to think that through your good behavior and being kind to, to others uh, and uh, do, doing more good than bad, somehow God's going to let you into heaven. But the Bible tells us in Titus 3.5, it says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But, there's that contrast word, according to His mercies, whose mercies? God's mercies. According to His mercies, He has saved or rescued us. How does a person get to heaven? Not by living a good life. Not because they come from a Christian family. Not because, they, uh, not because they've gone to church, put money in the plate, uh, uh, been kind to their neighbor. That's not how a person gets to heaven. God says your righteousnesses 
in my sight in comparison to my righteousness. Uh, they're filthy rags. You don't get to heaven by relying on you. You get to heaven by trusting in God. What he did is son on the cross for your sins. Jesus was born. He died. He rose again from the dead. And he just requires the simple act of faith. We looked at Matthew 7.14 earlier. It says that narrow is the way. The reason why it's narrow is because few there be that find it. And the reason why few there be that find it, it isn't because it's hard. It's because in our pride, in our selfishness, we think we can earn our way to heaven. And so God says, no, I'm not going to accept you by your good works. I'm going to accept you through your humility and your faith. If you cannot look back at a time in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, you didn't call on his name, begging him to rescue you from the pit of sin and to pull you out. There wasn't a singular moment in your life where you did that. Then, my friend, you need to make that day today. How many here this morning would say, Pastor, there was a time in my life I called on the name of Jesus to save me. I can remember that moment in my life. Maybe not the day, but I remember the moment. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I know I have done that. You can put your hands down. How many here today say, Pastor, I don't know that I've done that. I don't know that I have put my faith in Jesus alone to save me. I don't want to embarrass you. That's why everybody's heads bowed and eyes are closed. But my friend, I anonymously want to pray for you. Is there one here today say, Pastor, I don't know that I've made that decision. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Would you slip up your hand? I see a hand there. Listen, if you've not done that, it is as simple as calling out on God, putting your faith in Him. Let me encourage you in a moment when we stand, we have a moment of invitation where people will come and kneel and pray to to join those that are coming and allow us to have a lady share with you the message of salvation. So you can leave here today knowing your sins are forgiven and knowing that God has given you a place in heaven and will never be able to be taken away from you. Please don't leave here today without making that decision. How many here today would say, Pastor, on some level, whether it's the Bible or whether it's one of these other things, I can see how Satan has been selling me a bill of counterfeit. Pastor, pray for me that I will trade in the counterfeit for what God really has to offer. If that's you, just slip up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I can see I have fallen into some of his traps. Please pray for me. I see your hands. How many here today say, Pastor? going through a very difficult time in my life right now. Would you please pray for me as I weather a very difficult storm? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Lord, I do pray for those who have their hands raised. Would you help them? Lord, we have people who have some upcoming events in their lives that are just flat out scary. But Lord, we know that you're our shepherd and you're there to comfort us during the rainstorms of life. And so God, I pray you be near and dear to people. Help us, Lord, to not fall for Satan's counterfeits. Help us to buy into what you're selling. Help us to uh, believe uh, in an authentic book and an authentic way of living. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. As the piano plays, I'd encourage you to come and kneel and pray and talk to the Lord. Several of you here today are planning on getting baptized. If that's you, if you just come on forward and take a, you can stand here at the front pew and we'll get you lined up and ready to go. How about it today, Christian? You've fallen for a, a bill of goods and Satan's selling. You're living with lust and not love. Are you living with outward entertainment instead of peace? Are you thriving on happiness instead of joy? Christian, today, why don't you make a decision that you're going to choose the version of the Bible that God's author, authorized. 
Use that and study from it. Read it. Memorize it. get back to the basics of believing the Bible as God's perfect word and allow it to make a strong, profound impact in our lives. Amen. You can be seated. We're really excited today. We've got three uh, people lined up for baptism. And so this is exciting. Mark and Michelle, the two, you will stand. This is Mark and Michelle LeBrock. They uh, came to our church. They came to our church on the day we had our Christmas program. Mark found our church online, and uh, they came. And Mark uh, raised his hand for salvation sitting back here on the pew uh, a couple weeks ago and prayed the prayer there in his pew. My wife and I got to go by and and, uh, affirm that decision with him in his home. Michelle was saved as a young child at a church out in California where she grew up. And so they're... um, they're really excited about our church. They've got two precious children. I believe they've slipped in the service right over here. Colton and Cadence. Love having them here. So the two of you can make your way back here and begin preparing uh, to get baptized. Spencer, if you'll stand, I'll make this short and painless, okay? Uh, Spencer, these are his parents here, Ken and Alicia, and his brother Jared, sister Charlotte. They came about the same time that uh, Mark and Michelle did. And uh, Spencer was saved some time back, but isn't yet to follow the Lord in baptism. And we're going to take care of that for him today. So... Excited for these three getting baptized. One of the two, you need to come up here and lead us in a song. Pastor Mike, while we get ready for baptism. Come on, Spencer. All right, if you'll take your hymn books, let's turn to 411. Hymn number 411. As we prepare for the baptism, we'll sing few hymns. We'll sing Revive Us Again. We'll do the first, second, and fourth of 411. We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Alleluia, thine the glory. Alleluia, amen. Alleluia, thine the glory. Revive us again. Number two. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light, who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Alleluia, thine the glory. Alleluia, amen. Alleluia, thine the glory. Revive us again. And the last. 
revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Let's take our hymn books. 360. 360. Brother Mike, if you could just keep an eye out for the baptism for me, Brother Mike. 360. This is, there is a fountain. We'll do the first, third, and fifth. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Number three. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. All right, this is Mark LeBrock. He is accept- have you accepted Christ as your Savior? I have. On your public profession of your faith in Him, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Buried in the likeness of His death, okay. raised to walk in newness of life. It's not freezing cold, but it's not real hot either. All right. Sometimes our heater shuts itself off in the middle of the night here. We'll make this quick and painless. Michelle, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Yes. Upon your public profession of faith in him, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the of Spencer, you back there? I am. Where do you go? All right. Let's sit there for me. Right. Spencer, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? I have. Upon your public profession of your faith in Him, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of His death. 
Grace to walk in newness of life. Let's all stand to be dismissed. All right. I'll tell you something really funny here. These um, that I'm wearing, these were, these were bought for Pastor Pezlak. My toe's about to pop out of the shoe, and they're actually springing a small leak. So I've got to buy some new ones here. Um, but what an exciting day. Amen? What a great day in church. Hope you'll be back tonight. We'll be finishing up the book of Haggai, and we have an exciting service. We share testimonies about people who have been saved through our ministry throughout the week. It's just a wonderful time together. Starts at 6. We're generally out somewhere between 7.15 and 7.20. And so do your best to be back tonight, and uh, you'll be very glad you did. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're visiting today, thank you for being here. Let's see here. Brother Barr, if you would, raise your voice. Close us in prayer.